0: This week's episode of the Cincy Shirts podcast is brought to you by Blue Manatee. Did you know that when you buy a book from the Blue Manatee Literacy Project, they donate one to a disadvantaged child in Cincinnati? Your favorite children's bookstore in the beautiful neighborhood of Oakley in Cincinnati has a new buy one, give one mission with an even larger inventory from baby books to books for grown-ups. Now a nonprofit, the Blue Manatee Literacy Project donates a new book to a child in need who doesn't already have access to books appropriate for their age range. Since April, they've donated over 11,000 books to children in Cincinnati. With your help, they can donate even more. Visit bluemanatee.org to learn more or head to their storefront at 3094 Madison Road, Cincinnati, Ohio, 45209. Now, on with the show.
1: This is WCPO FM, 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the Nation Station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 103. Today on our show, journalist and author, Danny McLean.
1: What they say about journalists write the first draft of history, that's absolutely true. And so I remember being in my reporting, my like kind of reporting 101 class in August of 2005 when the hurricane hit. And I remember one of my classmates saying, those people are so stupid, they knew that a hurricane was coming, oh, why didn't okay. they leave?
0: Danny grew up in Camp Dennison, attended Indian Hill High School, before heading off to college in New York City. New York City? Yes, that's right. Sight unseen. Just decided she wanted to go to New York for college. She explains all that in the interview. She also talks about how she found her way into print journalism. Had no idea she wanted to do that until she was actually there at Columbia. And uh, what it was like to start a career in a profession at the time was going through some uh, very major changes, and I guess still is, you could say. She also talks about becoming an author, as well as being the Cincinnati Public Library's writer and residence currently, and what all that entails, and a whole lot more. If you've been liking the podcast, you can support the show via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to Danny McLean.
1: Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C I N C I N N A T I Cincinnati. In a while I'm at In Cincinnati
0: Danny McLean, thanks for joining us today.
1: <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh,
0: so you came to our attention f- through our friends at the Public Library, because you're the writer-in-residence there now?
1: Yes, so for the past, I think six years, the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library has had a writer-in-residence where they um invite uh, someone in the community who is a writer or an author to um, basically be the literary ambassador for the library to the community over the course of a year. And so that means um, hosting workshops. uh, It means um, hosting office hours where members of the community can come and sit with you. Uh, at a library branch, and talk to you about writing projects that they're working on. Oh, okay. um, they have a podcast that I'll host uh, this year, and you'll see me on the blog. And so it's just a way to bring um, someone um, who has a career in writing um, closer to the library community. And I use the word invite, but it's it's an application process. So I have okay, yeah.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Um, and you've had quite a career from from what i've seen um, so let's start at the beginning uh, you're from camp denison
1: that's right
0: okay and uh or george washington i think once owned property that we never set foot in the tri-state
1: <laughs> interesting i didn't yeah, know yeah. that i know uh, a little bit more about the fact that it was a um, training camp for Union soldiers during yeah. the Civil War but I didn't I actually have never really thought much about the, its history prior to
0: yeah we um did a blog Civil post War. on that because oh. there's a lot of talk around that George Washington where I live in Anderson Township he also owned a little slice of land these were given to him because of his military um, career in Virginia hmm. as compensation uh, all the soldiers got land out out which was then out west we were out west right. and uh, but he never set foot. Uh, in, south, in Northeast Ohio, he did. Southwest Ohio, he didn't. Okay. But, um, yeah. Interesting. His nephew wound up owning a big chunk of land in Claremont County. But well, we digress. Uh,
1: <laughs> it's all good. I mean, I'm I'm very curious about local history, so that's yeah, thanks yeah. for letting me know
0: that. Well, that's well, that's our shtick here, of course. Okay. It's uh, all, all old stuff, because you can see looking around the, the storeroom back here in, in Hyde Park. So you went to Indian Hill High School. Did you always, were you one of these kids that always wanted to, to be a writer and tell stories? I know some authors that, mean, you know, there were. Uh, one gal I know, she, I used to work with at everybody's news, she, she used to write on the walls when she was four and five years old, and so their parents knew she was going to be a writer. Was it like that for you at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I don't have any memories of writing on the walls, but hmm. I, I always knew that I loved writing and I love stories, so, um, you know, I remember my mom got me a journal when I was probably seven years old, and I started, you know, reflecting on my life in there, and... And then when I got to, and I always loved going to the library and reading books, and then um, when I got into high school and had more opportunities to do writing outside of an academic context, I, I really jumped at those opportunities. So Indian Hills uh, school newspaper is called Chieftain, and I um, wrote for Chieftain. I, I think first I did like movie and music reviews, and then I became features editor, and wrote profiles of teachers and students and then I also um, I studied Latin in high school and there's um, something called the Junior Classical League which is this uh, national and statewide organization for young people who study the classics so they're studying either Greek or Latin in high school and um, this organization is you know a kind of extracurricular way for those young people to deepen their interest in the classics and there's a statewide publication and then a national publication and I was editor of both of those so I was really interested early on in figuring out how to do I mean I guess we called it is journalism but I was interested in figuring out ways to like yeah put my skills um, develop my skills in writing and interviewing and research and um, you know kind of like curating publications. Uh, and those were ways that I was able to do that.
0: So what kind, kind of time period is this? Because
1: This would have been, I graduated high school in 96, so this would have okay. been the mid-90s. So
0: this is still the dawn of the internet when there yeah. aren't a lot of writing opportunities uh, out there. Because when I was, I graduated 10 years before you, and we didn't have a school newspaper. Oh, really? Yeah, largest public high school in the state. No school newspaper. Hmm. We had a TV station, radio station, which I worked at. But yeah, no, um, no newspaper, which I always thought oh, was that's really interesting. weird. Yeah,
1: we didn't have broadcasts, but we had a newspaper. Yeah, strange. Mm-hmm.
0: So well, I guess my question is: Did was that enough to fill your writing needs, or did you seek other things? Or I mean, it, it seems like it's a little easier now for young people if they have writing hmm. aspirations to have to find avenues for that.
1: Yeah, I mean that I, I don't remember feeling like I needed more to do. I mean, I was a very um, I was a super, you know, I was really into academics in high school, so I studied a lot and really was interested in, like, reading, you know, my English literature course yeah. and my history courses. And um, and then I also played soccer and um, was in the band, and I was, I liked doing things, you know? I yeah. mean, it wasn't just writing. I was just very active um, as a high school student, and so... Yeah, I think, um, it's, I I haven't given much thought to like what, how might things have been different if I were a teenager in the era of like Tumblr and, um, Twitter and Facebook where you can just kind of publish, you know, your, your thoughts or, um, self-publish in a lot of different ways that that we didn't have back then and, I'm very happy to have gone through my teen years without social media. I felt <laughs> just fine about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, having raised two teenage girls, I, could, uh, yeah. I can attest to that. Mm-hmm. Um, they turned out okay, though, so I think it worked out. Yeah. Uh, so it was... Um, oh, you still a soccer fan? I was going to...
1: Um, not so much. I mean, I've been to one FC Cincinnati game. Okay. And, but, I mean, I have gone through... I, I have a three-year-old, so I'm pretty... I don't know. It just feels like I'm busy all the time. But there have uh, been times in my life where I paid close attention to the World Cup and that kind of thing. But oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a super soccer fan. There you go. I like playing. I stopped yeah. I didn't stop playing until my like early 30s when I had an injury or maybe mid-30s when I had an injury. It's so I wish I could still play uh, like I used to.
0: It's interesting. Some folks like to play. Some folks like to watch. Some yeah. like to do both. It's yeah. just interesting. So it was off to college then. How did you decide where you were going to go? You re- were you recruited by because of your academic prowess or...?
1: I was recruited. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, um, I remember I was so excited to go to college. I really wanted to get away from Cincinnati. I wanted to go have other experiences elsewhere in the country. Um, and that's part of why, I mean, I liked school and I liked learning, but I also felt a certain pressure to do well so that I could get support, financial support and, um, and, and go elsewhere. Um, so I remember I got to take a lot of trips to visit different schools. My mom took me on one trip to the Boston area. Um, and then we had a visit in, at Indian Hill. We had a visit from a, an admissions officer um, named Peter Johnson. He came to Indian Hill during my sophomore year. And he was from Columbia. And um, I just remember uh, he was just such a striking figure. He passed away recently, so I've been thinking about him a lot. He, um, he's a black, he was a black man. And, you know, at Indian Hill, we did not have a diverse, um, teaching staff or or administration. So it was very different to have a black adult educator, um, come to campus, be on campus. And so that was exciting. Um, and I just remember listening to this, his stories about what it was like to be on Columbia's campus, what it was like to be a young person in New York City. And I was just captivated and mesmerized. And I was like, if there's any way that my family can make this happen, this is where I want to go. Um And so, yeah, that's where I, you know, I, and then I went, they they did a, I applied and got in and then they did a prospective students of color weekend in April of my senior year. And I went there and it was just so much fun just getting to spend that weekend in New York. And I met a ton of people who ended up being my good friends once I um, got to campus. So I just, yeah, it was kind of like a, I had a big crush on Columbia and I, and it was requited. I was quite lucky that I got to go there and spend that time there.
0: And so uh, you were not apprehensive about New York City. You kind of took to it pretty quickly because some people, you know, would be... A little freaked out going from Cincinnati to...
1: No, I just wanted that. You know, I mean, it's also important to remember, so like I said, I was a teenager in the 90s, so this was the era of, like um Real the Real World. Remember when the Real World yeah, first yeah. came on and yeah. the first the first season was in New York City. That's and right. and then it was also the era of like Friends and the Cosby show. So there were always oh, these yeah, yeah. you know, like NBC was all about these kind of New York and I guess Seinfeld and so yeah, there was I like guess so, yeah. Yeah, it was I like of that. New York was very much part of the kind of like pop culture, public, you know, consciousness at that yeah. moment. And so I was just completely drawn to the idea. I didn't feel apprehensive at all about it.
0: It's funny. We were watching Friends last night uh, on our DVD since we can no longer stream it. And I'm th- and there's a scene in the subway, Joey's in the subway, and I'm always thinking, it's always, always forget, that's actually on a soundstage in Los Angeles. It's mm-hmm. not actually New York City. It's yeah. so kind of weird.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I did not have like any of that nuance, I, but I knew that yeah. um, it looked fun and that that was enough to make me want to be there
0: yeah yeah well there is some you know something to be said for that uh you know i guess neighbor everything is right there around you it isn't like you know because you grew up out in the suburbs like i did so so, you know you have to travel everywhere and rely on a a car whereas in new york city everything is is right there Mm -hmm. so and you decided you wanted to you majored in journalism or english or
1: i majored in history History. so um there was no yeah it's a you know liberal arts college so that i didn't there was no opportunity to major in, um, journalism. So I, oh. I majored in history. I took a lot of history classes, a lot of sociology. I took some English. Um, I took, um, yeah, I had a really kind of well-rounded, you know, liberal arts education, but I loved, I, I had really, I had a good, um, American history teacher in high school, Meredith Lochran, And, um, I had also had good English teachers and, um, yeah, I loved history because it was, like, storytelling, but it actually happened. I mean, it's probably the same yeah. reason that I love, like, nonfiction and journalism. It's like, yeah. you know, when you have a good teacher and they can sit there and make some 19th century, pol- you know, U.S. political battle come alive in the form of a good story. I just, I, I love that. I love listening to it. I love reading about it. And so becoming a history major was a pretty easy um, choice for me. But I also really loved sociology. I loved theory. I loved, like thinking about class and race and gender and having people spell out power dynamics. I felt I had never been exposed to that before. And I was really drawn to, like, let's talk explicitly about these issues that basically dictate how we live our lives and how society functions. So I, I took a lot of sociology as well.
0: What What's your favorite history focus? What era? What? American history?
1: Yeah. So I studied, I focused on U.S. history. I focused on um, 20th century um, I was interested in um, the history of black people in this country, and I was particularly interested in um, the I did a lot of work on like the Communist Party, like black inter- black uh, engagement uh, in the Communist Party in the early 20th century. I was very there was a book that came out, and I guess probably when I was in college called Hammer and Hoe by a historian named Robert uh, Robin D.G. Kelly, who is one of my favorites um, that was about, um, sharecroppers organizing in Alabama, I believe, um, and there were yeah, there were just there were some great books that were out at that time about the ways that the Communist Party, the CPUSA, captured the imagination of Black folks who wanted to think about different types of political formations um, that address both racial justice and also economic justice.
0: It's funny you bring that up. I was listening to NPR, it was probably NPR yesterday. It might have been. Might have been BBC. Anyway, uh, someone was talking about how, the end of the Civil War till about the 1930s, you wouldn't really know a lot about Black folks because it it stops at the end of the Civil War. Basically, then it starts with the migration north. Mm -hmm. There really we don't isn't really discussed a lot about what's going on between the end of the Hmm. 19th century and the mid 20th century.
1: Well, I mean, you had you had this brief period of, you know, reconstruction where there were opportunities and black folks were running for office and winning and, you know, building institutions and then you had this, you know, with the withdrawal of federal troops, you had this huge backlash and, you know, Southerners, white Southerners um, uh, trying to kind of reestablish the racial hierarchy. So it was really a period of the entrenchment of Jim Crow and racial terror, basically. Um, so... Yeah, I was very lucky. You know, Barbara Fields, um, Eric Foner, um, Winston James, Manning Marable, like there were these incredible scholars on Columbia's campus at that time that I had a chance to study with.
0: So after Columbia, did uh, you know, the history and the sociology kind of affect kind of where your writing was going to go, or did you not really know when you graduated what you were, was gonna come next?
1: I really appreciate that question because I remember like wanting to go so another thing I want to just mention is that while I was on Columbia's campus I um, I was an editor for this um, there was an organization called the United Students of Color Council and we had a publication that was a literary magazine called Roots and Culture and so I, w- I wrote for that and I was an editor for that and then I also um, there was a campus publication that I wrote theater reviews for so I would get tickets to go to the public theater you know the Joseph Papp like this incredible theater and see these great shows and and write about them um and so I I really wanted I was curious about going into journalism after college but I did not I didn't know how you did it um and what I realize now is that it's all about connections so you know it's so there there was I remember there's a guy who I was in college with who got a job at the Daily News fresh out of college. Well, he knew someone who got him a job there, like that's what it was all about and I didn't have those kinds of connections. And so um, I figured that I didn't really know what I was going to do after college. I think our, um, you know, there's like the career services, whatever, you know, resources were very geared toward getting people placed in the financial industry. Um hmm. there were a lot of my classmates were going into, you know, working for Goldman Sachs or with so a liberal arts degree? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they just want kids that they consider quote-unquote smart. Oh, right? yeah, you don't have okay. to have training. Again, this is they, all about, can, who you know, Right, right. The, the school that you went to. Like huh. it's not about like whether whether you know how to do something in financial services. <laughs> like you're you're there to get the training, you know. Yeah, you don't yeah. they, you just come in um wow. and you're just quote-unquote like smart what well, you know have a certain kind of education. Um So I didn't get a lot of support from, you know, career services. Not just me personally. I think anybody who didn't want to go that traditional route into, like, you know, finance. Um, And so uh, what I I ended up getting a job um, right after college. I went to London for the summer. I had this fellowship to study at the London School of Economics. So I was there for the summer. That was incredible. And then I came back and I got a job... um, this was 2000. I got a job at a place. Well, no, first I got a job as an assistant to a journalist named Farai Judea. Farai had been, um, I think at that point in her, her career, she had already been at CNN, at PBS, at ABC. She, this is a young black woman. At the time that I started working with her, she was in her early thirties. She came straight out of Harvard and got all these like incredible jobs, um, at national news outlets. And when I met her, she had just launched her own, digital online, um, publication called pop and politics. So you mentioned this is, this is 2000. So oh, this yeah. is right at the beginning of like, um, you know, di- digital media. And for, I had this project called pop and politics and I was hired as her assistant editor. Really? I was her assistant. Um, so I kind of supported her with whatever she needed, but I also did some things on the site as well. Um, and I was with her during the election of 2000, Um, which of course was this pivotal, highly contentious election we ended up going to, um, with the results in dispute for months. She ended up taking me to Florida during the recount, um, to just accompany her on a reporting trip. So we were in, I know we were in Tallahassee and we we may have traveled elsewhere in the state just to talk to folks about how they had voted. So that was my first real reporting trip. My, you know, I really am thankful for that experience because I got to work with this, um, professional reporter who was willing to let me just tag along and take me under her wing. Um, but she, I think, lost funding for Pop and Politics pretty quickly. I was with her for fewer than six months, and yeah. then I got hired at a place called Drug po- At the po- time, it was not called Drug Policy Alliance. It's now called Drug Policy Alliance, but, um, at the time, it was called the Linda Smith Center Drug Policy Foundation. And it was a project that was working on ending the war on drugs, you know, looking at, the kind of costs of criminalizing drug use and abuse and looking at models um you know that treat drug use uh, and abuse as a public health public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue and so I was doing some of the earliest work around decriminalization and legalization but also looking at things as I said from a criminal justice standpoint and so one of the campaigns that I worked on while there was the campaign to end um the Rockefeller drug laws, which were these mandatory minimum sentencing laws in New York state. Um, so that was a real intro and I worked in the communications office. So I was like learning how to write press releases, learning how to pitch reporters, learning how to put together press kits, learning how to give a spokesperson talking points and train them to talk to media. So that was really interesting because it was a job with a nonprofit organization that, but I consider it critical journalism training because I was learning about journalism from the side of, um, you know the the kind of um, the organizations that pitch journalists. Like how, where do stories come from? That's yeah. really what that job taught me. Like hmm. where do stories come from? How do journalists get some of the ideas that they end up pursuing for stories? So I was there for a couple of years, and then I ended up coming back to Cincinnati and teaching high school for a couple of years at Clark Montessori High School.
0: Oh, what did you teach?
1: I taught social studies. There you go. Yeah.
0: And what of your writing aspirations while you were teaching?
1: Um. You know, it's funny because I've had this career that's taken me into all these different fields, but I see it all as related. So when I was teaching, um, first of all, I was very naive. I figured, well, I studied history in college. I know how to teach. High, you know, I can teach high school US, a high school U.S. history course. Not at all. I mean, there's <laughs> a reason why teachers get trained in pedagogy. You have to learn classroom management. You have to learn yeah. what it means to work with students with disabilities. You have to learn, especially at a Montessori school where... There's no tracking and, um, you have to structure your curriculum so that you're meeting students wherever you're meeting students where they are. So working with students who, you know, are quote unquote gifted students who have learning disabilities all in the same classroom, learning how to structure your curriculum so that it, it meets all kids needs. Um, but I was there. So my, my writing aspirations, you know, I was writing lesson plans and I was writing, (laughs) um, you know, I was thinking, I was researching. These are all things that I do as a journalist. So, um, I also was involved in some things out, you know, I had a life outside of the classroom and I was doing a lot of voter organizing. So this was 2003, 2004. Um, there was a national organization at the time called the League of Young Voters, the League of Pissed Off Voters. And my friends and I started the Cincinnati chapter of the League of Pissed Off Voters. And so we were, um, We started with the mayoral race in 2003, creating a, um, a voter guide, a non, non non-partisan voter guide. Like we weren't advocating the election of anyone in particular, but we figured there's a lot of people don't even know what the issues are. They don't know. And it's
0: even now it's hard to find out.
1: Exactly. I mean, I'm thinking about, I was just before I came in here texting with a friend. We're going to have, uh, we're going to get together at her house and invite 15 friends and talk about, where the issues and where the candidates stand in advance of the primary.
0: Here's one that's really uh, a bad one: is judges.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Know zero about judges, yep. and I never vote for judge because I don't. I don't want to vote for the wrong person. So, yeah. and I always try to look them up before the election. Yep. The issues, the ballot initiatives, you can usually find candidates. You can usually find even our township trustees. You can usually find out enough about that. Mm-hmm. But judges, I know zero about how they voted, mm-hmm. what their policies are, as far as you know. Uh, putting people in prison versus reform versus... I don't know any of that. That's, that's something that someone needs to pursue. <laughs> that's a
1: really good point. I mean, I think, yeah, I, you know, before the last election, the morning of, I was, like, looking up the legal Women Voters and trying to find out as much as I could. So there's more room for people doing voter education, and that's the gap that we really tried to fill back in 2003,
0: 2004. So how long did you teach?
1: Two years. I taught on... Um, start, started in the fall of 2003 and left in... Um, spring of 2005. And, um, and I, you know, I, I don't talk much about my short stint in teaching because I have so much respect for career teachers. And I really am clear that I mean, I was a decent teacher, I still keep in touch with a lot of my students who say that they really appreciated what we did together in class. And I learned a ton from my colleagues and from the families that I worked with. Um, but, you know, I think, People like me who do these short stints in teaching, these Teach for America folks who go in just for a couple years. It's like, we're not, I mean, we do our best, but we're not real educators, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah, so. Yeah,
0: I teach uh, young people on Saturdays. I teach comedy writing and podcasting Mm -hmm. and I only have at the most I ever have is 12 students that someone's allowed to have in the class Mm -hmm. and it's only for you know two hours per class there's two classes on a Saturday and I don't know how my teacher friends do it (laughs) I mean
1: it's the hardest job I've ever had yeah and
0: I only do it like I said maybe I'll do it a total of 18 times the entire year for 18 days and i'm still like no i couldn't do this i
1: will always say teaching is the hardest job i've ever had it's exhausting it's physically exhausting if you care about your students it's emotionally draining um I have a lot of respect for career educators. It's hard work.
0: Yeah. Now, my friend says there's never a bad day in first grade, so she's pretty happy with what <laughs> she's doing. So. But, uh, yeah, I don't – and and this jive that, you know, uh, teachers have it easy because they're off in the summers. Oh so, you know, a lot of them are off doing other jobs. Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they have to, yeah, make ends meet.
0: So from what did you do from teaching? What was your next stop?
1: So I had applied for journalism school um, and so I got into journalism school and I went back to Columbia. I moved back to New York um, and I did the 10, there's a 10 month master's program at Columbia. Uh-huh. So I went and did that in 2005. Um, and I started, I think my first month of journalism school, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. And so I learned a lot about um, how important journalists are in shaping our understanding of the world and, you know, what they say about journalists write the first draft of history, that's absolutely true. And so I remember being in my reporting, my, like, kind of reporting 101 class in August of 2005 when the hurricane hit, and I remember one of my classmates saying, and, and we were, like, kind of reflecting on the news, and I remember one of my classmates saying, those people are so stupid. They knew that a hurricane was coming. Ugh. Why didn't they leave? And I was just like, uh, oh, my God. This person is probably going to be working at the New York Times in five years. Yeah. And this, these are the biases that he's coming yeah, yeah. in with. You yeah.
0: Know? Oh, yeah. T- talk radio was on the – I won't name names, but uh, one of the uh, more popular radio personalities here, a local guy, was saying the same thing. He'd, oh, I'd, I'd just – I'd start walking. And I'm like, no, you wouldn't, you idiot. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you'd be, Walk doing, to where? you'd be doing exactly <laughs> it's a big storm. what those people were doing, which was trying uh, to survive, climbing yeah. up on their roofs, yeah, trying yeah. to find food, trying to cross, you know, um, so it was a real, I'm, um, I feel thankful, you know, that I was in journalism school at this moment that there was this huge national story and looking at coverage with a real critical eye about how these mostly black people who were in New Orleans were being talked about and how, um, how that was how that was covered. Um but yeah, it was a it was a very tricky time to try to enter the news industry because it was right when basically the bottom started falling out of newspapers. So yeah. I really wanted to be a print reporter. Um you could pursue the print track or the radio track or the um or I guess it was broadcast, they lumped radio and TV together and I really wanted I wanted to be a writer. You know, that's what I had always wanted. And so I really went knowing that I wanted to get a job in newspapers because back back then that was the path. If you wanted to be a writer, if you wanted to end up writing books, writing for magazines, you got a job at a, uh, as big a Metro daily paper as you could and you worked your way up. And so that's what I tried to do. And I, um, I ended up getting two uh, internships right out of journalism school, one at the Milwaukee journal Sentinel. Uh-huh. I was there for three months covering health. And then I went to the Miami Herald and I was there for three months on the Metro desk. Um, and then i got hired back at the journal sentinel and i was there for 2 years covering schools and while i was there over the course of those 2 years there were 3 buyouts i saw career reporters people who had been in that newsroom for 30 years um taking buyouts because they you know the 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 paper couldn't support as big a as big a reporting staff anymore so i really entered the field in a moment where the business model no longer worked and there were real questions about how newspapers were going to stay afloat
0: did you have any like misgivings at that point, thinking, uh oh," because I kind of fell into journalism myself, and I, yeah, same problem. It's like there are fewer and fewer, you know, opportunities.
1: Yeah, I had too. a lot of misgivings. I yeah. was, um, I mean, on the one hand, there was just the kind of. Um, it was just disheartening. So I learned so much from my colleagues, you know, who had been there. I think about people, Mike Julie, who was my editor, Marie Rody, like these people who had spent their entire careers. These were people who at the time were probably in their 50s, had spent their entire careers at the Journal Sentinel. And whenever I was new to the city, new to the paper, so I had a lot of questions about like, how does this work? You know, what do I need to know about the backstory here in Milwaukee public schools? What do I need to know about the mayor's relationship with this and that? And, you know, Eugene Kane, a longtime columnist. These were people who I could go to and who, um, they helped this institutional knowledge. And I saw not, not any of the people who I named just then at that point, um, took buyouts, but I, I saw these people leaving. And so I thought, what's going to happen to this paper when these, People who know so much about the city and politics leave, and then more selfishly, I thought, okay, what am what am how is my career going to work here? Um, so yeah, I I was I left after a couple of years um, for a lot of reasons, but one was that it didn't seem to be as straight a shot like that story that I had been told about. Okay, you go to a major metro, and then you get hired by a bet. You know, like you go from the just for example, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel to the Chicago Tribune and then maybe you catch the attention of an editor at the New York Times, this kind of traditional trajectory didn't seem to be as much um, the way to go.
0: What was Milwaukee like?
1: Oh, Milwaukee... And I mean, one thing I'll say is that being a Cincinnatian, I can you know I'm a Midwesterner, right? Mm-hmm. Living in Milwaukee taught me that the Midwest is more complex than I knew. Um, the Upper Midwest is not the is not Cincinnati. So the Upper Midwest, um, Chicago, Milwaukee is very different. For one thing it's way colder. I never got used to the <laughs> I never got used to the climate. Like I was just too cold. It's winter from October through April. Yep. It's probably changing with climate change. It's probably a little warmer now, but um yeah, I just felt way too cold all the time. I felt like I was always digging my car out from a snowbank and like skidding on some icy road. Um Milwaukee's very segregated. Yep. Um I mean, Cincinnati segregated too, but it was, I think, I felt like the segregation was even more pronounced. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a city where, like Cincinnati, you know, you, if you're not from there, it takes a while to get a feel for who's who and, yeah. you know, how power works and all that. Um, it was a great place to get my reporting chops, and I learned, I met a lot of great people, and I have fond memories. But um, ultimately, it was <laughs> too cold.
0: So, really, the the polar opposite excuse the sort of pun Miami. Yeah. How how, is, how different was Miami? You know, yeah. A, Miami a was a diverse,
1: yeah, metropolit-
0: yeah, cosmopolitan, if you will, versus you know, old Milwaukee and.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because, I preferred. My, Milwaukee to Miami actually oh. like thinking about where I wanted my, my career in reporting to start I, I was more drawn to Milwaukee Miami was um, I think it's very it's a very complex complicated place like especially as someone who didn't speak Spanish that's why I felt uh-huh. like that wasn't the right place for me to be um, as someone who did not speak Spanish I was at a disadvantage um, so I also felt like it was a great challenge though. I remember I was, there was a Haitian, there was a, what was the story? There was a Haitian political leader. No, there was a, there was a Haitian American politician in Florida whose brother had been a big wig in Haiti and the brother died or was killed. And the funeral was in Haiti and I'm sorry, the funeral was there in Miami and I got sent to cover the funeral. So I'm like, okay, well, how do you cover a funeral? I just did not know what I was doing. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to cover this funeral. Everyone is speaking um, Crayol. I don't really understand what's going on. Um, and I remember approaching the the brother who was this Haitian-American political lead- leader in Florida. And, like, I uh, approached him and his his wife in the receiving line, and I'm like, kind of trying to interview him. It was very disrespectful and like, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and then I get back to the newsroom and I have to try to piece a story together. And I had French. I studied French in junior high and high schools. And, and so my French was decent. So I was like able to pick up some things. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, it was just like, and so I remember taking my notes back to the newsroom and sitting with this editor and like, we just had to figure it out. And it's like, placing calls to Haiti and using my broken French to try to (laughs) communicate. So it was, that was the challenge of being in Miami. Like really being an outsider is just like this midwesterner, you know, only an English speaker thrown into this very international city where I had to figure things out. Um, that was, I, it was good for my reporting. Uh, one, just one thing I want to mention is there was a, um, there was a, uh, a big, um, there was some, there was a housing crisis in Miami then as now, where poor and low-income people basically were being pushed out of the city because they couldn't afford anything. And there was a squatters' camp that ended up being um, set up while I was there, and it it was a story that I followed. Like here are these poor folks who are taking over. I can't remember if it was like a, if they were on public property, if it was a privately held piece of property that they took over and basically set up this camp. So that was a story that was interesting that I followed while I was there. And then it ended up becoming this kind of front page story in the, in the subsequent years after I left. Um, Mm. but it was, yeah, it was, you know, I just like, I don't think a lot back on those that time, but I'm so glad that I was a newspaper reporter. I'm so glad that I had to go learn how to, um, work a beat and hit the streets, not just sit on your phone and or on the internet and figure things out. But like, Go to a place, ask a lot of questions, have no idea what you're doing, depend on the kindness of like, you know, your sources to walk you through something. I think about young people or not even young people, but people who are getting into journalism today when so much of it is online. yeah. And you're basically just like sitting with your laptop in your house trying to figure things out. No shade, no disrespect to them, but that's very different from working for a daily paper where you are responsible for working a geographic beat or working, you know, a, a subject matter beat within a city. It's very different, and I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity to do that.
0: And there are some places that are trying to do that, you know, to, to be more you know, locally sourced but online. And,
1: yeah, know, yeah. But,
0: but, yeah, you're right. It's probably not necessarily forcing people to actually go out and... You know, talk to people face to face.
1: Well, yeah, it used to be the case that every city worth its salt had at least one paper. Yeah. And so there were jobs and that's not the case anymore. You know, these, like I said, these these publications, these city papers are hemorrhaging jobs. We used to have the Post and the Inquirer. We used to have, you know, or, or everybody's news, CityBeat. Like, even in a mid-sized city like Cincinnati, there were journalism jobs. Yeah. And we just don't have that anymore.
0: Yeah. And as you're saying, it, it certainly affects the, the, the career path of people. But on the other end of it, it's also affecting the readership. Oh, gosh. People don't really understand. For sure. You know, they, they, well, if I don't read the newspaper, what does it matter? But there's, <sighs> you know, there's, and we had this guy, Mike Breen, the music editor of City Beat, was in here. We were discussing, you know, it's, it's weird that even though the website gets way more hits, people still want to see a hard copy, like my, my friend, my comedian I just interviewed, he's asking, oh, I sent him the link for it, then the email, and that's all, it's the first thing shows up in the email from City Beat. Go see Marie Valeriano. Mm. And very funny, folks. Recommended. (laughs) Uh, And and he's like, oh, is this in the print one too? And I'm like, yeah, it should be at the club too, because there's that Mm. permanence to print. That it doesn't go away. Right. So even if you hear a story on Fox 19 or Channel 5 about a politician, it might leave your conscience. Yeah, yeah, but if yeah. it's sitting on the paper and that's it's right. sitting on your coffee table, I mean, is that really the? I think the
1: thing that we're that's missing? right, and I think that you're absolutely right. We don't talk enough about the effect of the shrinking media landscape on the on just like the audience, right? Readers. Um, I want to know what's happening in my school board. I want to know what's <clears throat> happening in city council. I there needs to be someone whose job it is to go sit on the sit in, in on those meetings every time they happen and ask the hard questions and follow up with these public officials and that's the real problem with these shrinking newsrooms is like who's keeping an eye like where the public watchdog function falls by the wayside and we have no idea what's going on and it's incredibly dangerous for democracy.
0: And weirdly there's an inherent mistrust and in stuff online, even though it's people go to get mm-hmm. all their news and then they turn around and they don't trust it. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Which is,
0: yeah. Just, so what was first Miami or Milwaukee? or?
1: So I, I had a, I had an intern. I was very lucky. You know, I got two intern, two internships coming right out of journalism school. So I went, spent that summer, three months in, the, uh, in Milwaukee. And then I spent that fall of 2006, three months in Miami. And I, by then I had gotten hired back at Milwaukee okay. so I left Miami and went back to take the full-time job at, at in Milwaukee
0: so was that career director kind of back on path working for the big daily and then kind of trying to move up is that what you were yeah okay no
1: I did th- yeah I mean I I did that and I um, you know I did an investigative piece while I was at the journal Sentinel that resulted in Basically the whole like financial department for the racing public schools getting fired, and it was wow. like this huge public oversight crisis yeah um so I again I learned a ton and then um but then, you know I will say that what what was always a challenge for me was the way that we talk, it's not, it's even less now, but back then, like the way that we talk about objectivity was a challenge for me. Like, I just don't think it's true that people don't have not opinions, but an orientation. So even to say like, I'm apolitical. Well, or, or like, I don't have any opinions on this. I just saw a lot of people using objectivity as a shield for really conservatism, like really they were for the status quo and really they were in favor of like, um, yeah, the status quo and the more conservative stance, but that kind of like feigning ignorance about these issues made them appear to be objective, trustworthy journalists. Whereas anyone like me who had done voter organizing or who had worked for a nonprofit that looked at the drug war from a critical lens or who had um, taught an African-American studies course at a public school in Cincinnati, like I was seen as suspect, right? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I'm like, oh, she's like this young black woman who's like secretly a lefty, right? And so <laughs> I always felt like I was kind of up against, um, I was up against this perception or this kind of prejudice that I couldn't be like a real journalist which means like, well, then who can be, you know, the kind of white guy who has never done any kind of political work. Like he's seen as being a fair reporter. I think we're finally getting into um, having a larger conversation about the ways that journalism can really keep out people from marginalized backgrounds um, because we're seen as being biased just by virtue of our identities. But at the time, that felt like a kind a conversation that wasn't really happening. And it felt like a reason why I was never going to be able to be my full self in journalism.
0: huh. yeah. Cause that's been a, a controversy for, for years is, you know, this, this jive, they try to run by. So it was, uh, you know, we told both sides of the story. Well, maybe there isn't both sides. Maybe one, maybe one side is BS, <laughs> you know, this, maybe there's more than one side of the story there's but, that. and a lot, and people, you know, the, I guess, the people consuming the news are, are ready to buy into that very easily. It seems. Yeah.
1: I mean, I am, I mean, what I learned in doing, you know, newspaper reporting is like, I will never be afraid to talk to anybody. You know what I mean? I mean, I, you have to listen to the other side to determine whether or not it's BS. Right. Yeah. Like you have to and, hear yeah. those folks out and hear the perspective and like ask them hard questions and all that. Um, and so that was the, the benefit of doing newspaper journalism is like, I think there are some people who, um, completely write off conservative perspectives. And I don't think that that's right. Um, but I was more interested in going deep. I was more interested in like solutions journalism. I was more interested in going deep into, okay, if we can agree on this general s- Set of facts then how can we go deeper here yeah right but when you're now we're like so divided in terms of even the facts that people believe Right. Yeah. You know? i mean people are like living in completely separate realities in terms of what they think is real you know that's happening in um in our world and in the government that's hard to create meaning to make meaning when people are living in these parallel universes yeah um so I think for a lot of reasons, it was um, I was interested in doing something outside of newspaper journalism. And that's when I took a job at a place called Color of Change, which is a civil rights organization um, at the time was based in Oakland, California. And I moved oh. to Oakland to take that job. How is Oakland? Love it. Miss it all the time. Oh, OK. Miss it all the yeah. Time. The,
0: the Bay Area is also it's um, pretty diverse, in not only socially, but just in terms of like the whole area, like, you know. Environmentally and, mm. and everything. Uh, how long were you there?
1: Seven years.
0: Seven years, wow. Um, and you'd you'd go back?
1: <laughs> um, let's see. Would I go back? Maybe under the right circumstances. I mean, it's very expensive. Oh yeah. I don't miss paying so much. And
0: I was going to you know, say, yeah. Expenses. But. That, that is a big controversy. The the housing. Did you deal a lot with that with the housing crisis in so, Northern California? So
1: I moved there in two thousand. Eight, the end of 2008 December of 2008 I moved to Oakland so at that point it was still it wasn't so expensive that it was you know unlivable um it's. It, I'm th- I just want to say this because it's on my mind. Just, you know, there's something going on in Oakland right now. There's a group of mothers. Yes. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was on yeah. NPR. yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and all these people are buying property. They don't even live in California. Right. They're just doing it to invest. Maybe they'll sell it someday. Maybe they won't. And people are saying, you know, people need to live in these houses.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Well, the thing about that is like, it's not even so just for your listeners who might not be following this story. So yes. there's a group of moms that are homeless um who have taken over, that had taken over this property in West Oakland um, that, when I used to live in West Oakland, so I could say more about, like, exactly what that community, at least what it was like when I was living there. But it's pr- predominantly black. It's kind of like, it was known as the Harlem of the West back during the Great Migration. It was like, a had a great jazz scene. It's where a lot of people who worked in the port lived um, so these moms, they're all black. I believe they're all black. The spokespeople are definitely black moms. And um, they might, there might have been some other moms of color in the mix, but they took over this house that was owned by, um, a pri, like a corporation, right? So it's not just like an absentee landlord, like an individual person owns this house. This is a, um, a home that's owned by Wedgwood, which is a, um, investment company. Um, yep. and the house at Sat Yank, excuse me, the house had sat vacant for two years before the moms moved in in November. They moved their kids in. They, you know, bought furniture. They made it a home. They had a Christmas tree. A lot of the kids were saying, like, we haven't had a Christmas in so long. Like, we got to decorate this tree together. Um, and they were evicted. Was it earlier this week or They last were
0: trying week? to evict them. I think the decision, the last I heard, the decision was still going to come down as to whether they would be
1: evicted. So they were legally evicted. That decision came down. Okay. And then the sheriffs came and forcibly removed them from the house earlier this week. Okay. Um, and so that's the kind of, and so like you said, there were, there were, you know, hundreds of people took to the streets in Oakland once the order came down that they were legally evicted to try to protect these families and say like, this house was sitting vacant. You know what? You weren't, like there, are, there's a homelessness crisis in Oakland right now, um, and so for there to be homes sitting vacant when people are living in the streets does not make sense. They're trying to advance this argument that housing is a human right. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of thing that now is happening in Oakland. When I was living there, the crisis was not at that level. You okay. still had like longtime Oaklanders who were still able to afford living in Oakland. You had people who worked for nonprofits and social justice organizations, not making a ton of money, who were able to still live in Oakland, and now that has changed. Because you've had these um, tech companies move up from Silicon Valley oh, yeah. into yeah. San Francisco, and then pushing people out of San Francisco and out of the East Bay as well. Even you know, I have a friend who's a long, who's a life, he's he's an Oakland native who just moved with his family to um, Sacramento and is uh, commuting yeah. from Sacramento to Oakland you know, to keep his job in journalism. Like, these are the stories that you hear about people who are moving way east or north in California, but trying to keep their jobs in Oakland and San Francisco.
0: and same thing in Southern California. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So what took you out of Oakland, but like?
1: Yeah, so I left Oakland, so I was there. I was working at Color of Change. I was running campaigns, um, teaching other people how to run issue-based online campaigns. And I was doing communications and media for that organization. And then I left there in 2012 and I got a fellowship, a journalism fellowship. I really missed reporting and writing. And I loved what I was doing with color of change, but I ultimately missed, um, reporting. I got a fellowship in at the end of 2012, um, to be an independent journalist and to be a full-time freelancer, um, covering reproductive rights and reproductive health. And, um, so I stayed in Oakland for a while doing that work. And then I ended up moving back here uh, to Cincinnati in 2015. I had um, a, my my aunt, who was like a second mom to me, had cancer, and she got very sick, and she died in um, March of 2015. So there was just a lot of family change, and um, it felt like the right thing to do to, to move back here.
0: And so you got a lot of high-profile gigs uh, when you... Uh, writing for The Nation mm-hmm. and for... How did all those come up? Did they approach you? Did you pitch them? How does...
1: Um Well, when I first got that fellowship, I was just finding my footing in journalism again, you know? I was, like, pitching and trying to make contacts with editors and just trying to really, most importantly, learning how to report on reproductive rights and reproductive health and reproductive justice, because, you know, I had covered education before that. I had worked on the Metro desk, but I had never, I hadn't covered reproductive rights before. So I was like getting my footing in this world that I wasn't familiar with. Um, Eventually, I think what happened, I wrote a story for the nation. So this was 2014. It's when um, the Obama administration was had this whole My Brother's Keeper initiative, um, which was like this kind of new focus, putting a new focus on boys and men of color and like health disparities and education disparities and employment disparities with among boys and men of color. And so I wrote this, there were a lot of black feminists and just kind of observers at the time who were like, hmm, okay, yes, you know, these disparities are real and we as women and girls live in the same communities as these boys and men of color that you're talking about. And we also face these same disparities and we're being overlooked. And is there a way that we can, if we're going to start getting these this kind of attention from the administration, is there a way that we can bring women and girls into the conversation? And so I wrote a piece for The Nation, I think it was in the spring of 2014, making this argument. And it got a lot of attention. And um, after that, they asked if I would blog um, for The Nation I think at that point I was blogging every week. Um, and so that's what started my relationship with the nation. And from there it just grew. I started writing features and longer features and cover stories. And um, from there started getting more attention from other publications as well. And that's been how I've gotten, you know, how I've kind of tried to, keep my career afloat and, yeah. and keep doing, you know, bigger and better stories over these past eight years.
0: Yeah. And you've been able to do it from Cincinnati, which is...
1: <laughs> yeah. So nice. for the past four years, I've been able to do it from Cincinnati. I mean, I've spent the past... I, um, I got a book deal in September of 2017. Is that right? Um, so for the past couple years, my attention has been on this book that I wrote um, that's about motherhood. It's called We Live for the We, the Political Power of Black Motherhood. Um, that came out in April of 2019. And so, yeah, so for the past few years, even more so than writing magazine articles, I've been working on my book and then doing, you know, I was on book tour. I'm still traveling around promoting the book and and talking about the book.
0: So that's a whole different skill set, it seems like, Mm -hmm. going from journalism, because I tell people this all the time. I should probably write a book, but I would have no idea what to write about. Mm -hmm. Well, I could probably come up with something, but just the whole... You know, from the way I'm used to writing in these small, you know, quick chunks, versus doing yeah. a book. How do you like? how is mm. it because diff- I've heard some journalists say it, it, they they can't do it? They'll you know, even though they've written their whole lives, it, yeah. a book is really it's a daunting task. And other people that've never written or seem to have do it pretty easily.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think because I, when I started the book, I had experience writing magazine articles of like between three and five thousand words, so. I mean, I, I approached it like a math problem. Okay, I'm I yeah. have this book contract. My I need to turn in eighty thousand words. How do I break those eighty thousand words into chunks that feel manageable? And so I was uh-huh. just like, okay, so how can I approach this? So I'm basically writing a series of like. It ended up being my chapters. My the book is nine chapters of about seven thousand words. Um, so I came in under eighty thousand, but. Um, Yeah, it's, I made, I had to make it manageable for myself. And that, that felt like I was like, I can do this. Like, I can write, uh, I can write, um, an essay or like a reported article of about this length. And that's how I approached it. I thought about the book is about parenting. And I had, you know, the, the, basically the idea behind the book is, um, I was, I was pregnant with my first child and I had all these questions about how to raise her. Um, I, some of those questions I could take to my mom or, you know, people I know, but some of them were really about, they were more political questions. Like how do I bring my political values into my family life? How do I bring, and I think particularly in this age of like black lives matter, I had also spent a significant chunk of time covering black lives matter organizing. So particularly in this era of black lives matter and me too, how do I raise a black girl child? at this moment where we have all these questions about power and, um, self-determination. And so I realized that because of the beats that I had been working on, I actually knew all the people who I needed to ask those questions. I had been covering reproductive justice, I had been covering racial justice organizing, and a lot of my sources were parents. But I And I had talked to them about their campaigns and about their political work, but I had never talked to them about how they bring their political values into their family life. And so that was really the kind of drive, you know, the kind of what I was looking to answer with the book. Um, and so. Yeah. And so the book is organized kind of chronologically. Like what are the questions that you would have during pregnancy and birth? What are the questions that you would have with a toddler, with a school age child, with a teenager? Um, and that's how I approach the book in terms of structure. Like how can I break this into bite sized pieces that I can yeah. actually manage that focus on these questions that I have.
0: And doing that deep dive, did you find anything that kind of surprised you or like like long held myths that maybe you mm. were like, Oh, this isn't I always thought this was true and this isn't true at all? Or, that's
1: interesting. I mean, there are a lot of things. I think, so one of the, at one point I delve into this question of discipline and spanking. Yeah. You know, and I think that there's this, so I, I think especially in black communities, there's this idea that, well, you have to spank your kid because they, you need to put the fear of God in your kid or else they might misbehave in front of the wrong person and end up like seriously injured or dead at the hands of police like the Mm. stakes feel really high right you can't be out here misbehaving because the stakes are way too high um you could get expelled at school for doing something that a white child might do and like get a slap on the wrist if that right yep so i was really interested in this conversation around spanking because there's also this idea that like spanking is violence and you don't put your hands on your kid because you want them to understand that their body is theirs that they have bodily autonomy and that no one not a police officer not a teacher and not even their parent has the right to put their hands on them
0: and violence is not the answer and
1: violence isn't the answer you Mm -hmm. don't want them to engage in violent behavior so how do you teach a kid not to hit other others when you're hitting them yourselves right so i was interested in like teasing out these threads like what is what are these different perspectives and how do we reconcile them if they can be reconciled so that was something that was like really interesting to, to get into. And I think, um, what surprised, like there, I remember interviewing this mom in Oakland. She's actually an Oakland resident about this. And she said, you know, a lot of times, um, I'll go into, I'll talk to people and they'll say, um, well, I have to spank my kid because if I don't, they're going to grow up to be in a gang or they're going to grow up, you know, um, they're going to they're going to not do the right thing and they're going to, you know, have all these terrible outcomes. And she said, well, actually, a lot of times if you do spank your kid and, in, and engage in this kind of like um, hierarchy in the home where like you're the all powerful, they actually come to respect authoritarian um, power and so they are more likely to get in a gang or to get involved with oh. like a sexually exploitative older guy or something like that. Right. Because they're used yeah, to not yeah. feeling like they have any power. So they're drawn to these structures in which they they know where they fit in the pecking order and they feel comfortable having someone who's telling them what to do. So that was just wow. like a kind of counterintuitive. Like, that's yeah. deep. That's, like I, yeah, there you, go. <laughs> you know, so yeah. there were. Yeah, it was I learned a lot. Just it really made me think. And it's really been helpful as I have questions about raising my own child, who's now three.
0: Wow. So you're still doing writing for other uh, places while you're doing the writer in residence?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at the end of last year, I had a piece in... The Atlantic. I had a piece in Self magazine, which is a Condé Nast publication, yeah. which no longer comes out in its print form, but it's online. And they're doing this great series on the black maternal health crisis. Black women are three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy or childbirth related complications. And I've been writing a lot about that. Um, I had a piece in The Nation about abortion rights in Ohio. Um, so, yeah, I'm still writing uh, as much as possible.
0: Cool. Wow. We've, we're already in an hour here. Look at that. It just flew right by. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, where can folks... Uh, the name of the book is...
1: The name of the book is We Live for the We, the Political Power of Black Motherhood.
0: Can be found in all the usual places. Your
1: local library, yep. um, Joseph Beth, um, Downbound Books, uh, Smith & Hannon, any of our local bookstores. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at dr. McLean. I'm not a doctor, although it reads like Doctor. McLean. Those are my <laughs> initials. I'm on Instagram at Danny underscore McLean. And also, you know, we're going to be rolling out the schedule for my writer in residence. Um, That's my next question. Yeah, so I'm going to be. I can't wait. We're doing um, writing workshops at different branches. Um, I'll be hosting a podcast uh, for the library called uh, Inside the Writer's Head. So just keep an eye on mm-hmm. the on the library's website to. Uh, get a feel for when I'll be doing those events.
0: Okay, and uh, I noticed when you go to the library's website, your picture pops up as one of the things we're promoting, so mm. people can find that. Uh, there we go, they might... Laptop went to sleep. It's fine. Um, but they, they can, if you go to the library website, which I do often, your picture pops right oh, up. Oh, so You can find more information about the Writer in Residence program and what that would all entail. And That's great. Oh, awesome. Terrific. Okay, so the last order of business, um, you have been listening to many episodes of the podcast. We invite our guest to pick a word, and they can use this word or phrase to take 20% off their next purchase at Cincy Shirts, oh. either the online store or uh, in our brick-and-mortar stores. So if you wanted to choose a word or a phrase... For the listeners to use, what would that be?
1: Mm. Um, let's say Community.
0: Community. Very good. All right. Use Community uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com, com, or in the stores, Cincy Shirts in Loveland, Hyde Park, and over the Rhine, and take 20% off uh, your order there. Uh, look for Danny McLean, all the places you said to look for. And uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh,
0: Quite a career, right? Uh, I had a hard time picking a playout song that was appropriate, but I finally settled on that one because, well, I think it fits. Look for Inside the Writer's Head podcast, uh, the podcast that she will be doing, uh, Danny, that is, uh, under the auspices of the Cincinnati Public Library. I reckon just keep checking their website and then I'll let you know when that is going to premiere. And of course, find her book, We Live for the We, the Political Power of Black Motherhood, wherever you get books, including ebooks. So I guess you can find that pretty much anywhere. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, just drop us an email, podcast at and put podcast guest in the subject line. You can use that same email to donate to the podcast via PayPal or Venmo. And also, in the body of the email, maybe include a brief little bio and why you think that guest would be interesting for your fellow listeners. And of course, be sure to plunder the Cincy Shirts podcast archives for all 102 previous episodes of the show, if you haven't already. uh, Everyone from Johnny Bench to Amy Yazbeck, all fabulous episodes, all kinds of stuff in there. Haunted Cincinnati, uh, everything about Cincinnati. We are pretty much covering it and continue to cover. Today's show is produced by me, with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing, who are actually from Philadelphia. You can find all of their music at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find midget tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at oldschoolshirts.com. We have a lot of funk sports teams, old hockey teams, old basketball teams, shopping centers, radio stations, things like that. It's like Cincy shirts, but for those towns. If you know somebody out of town you'd like to buy a Cincy shirt like shirt for, why well, do check out oldschoolshirts.com? And you can use the promo code from today's episode. Again, that promo code is community. All lowercase, all uppercase, either one works. Uh, I knew this would happen eventually. Now they're on episode 103. Uh, Community has been used before... I don't know if it was used in relation to a podcast. I checked the dates. It doesn't look like. It looks like we used it for uh, a a previous promo, perhaps with the Reds Community Fund. But anyway, for the next seven days uh, from the dropping of this episode, uh, it will be Community. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Or you can walk into one of our physical or, as we say, brick-and-mortar stores in Over the Rhine, Hyde Park, or Loveland and say Community, and you will get 20% off your order there. So follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and snapchat for the latest in z-shirts news give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from and as always download or stream us next time bye